0: What's your favorite scary movie? An iconic line from an iconic film. When The Original Scream hit theaters in 1996, it sent shivers down the spines of millions of Americans. But for college kids in Gainesville, Florida, the cult classic horror film hit a little too close to home. Did you know Scream is inspired by a real-life serial killer? The killer, dubbed the Gainesville Ripper, stalked young college kids at the University of Florida. He savagely tortured, raped, and murdered his victims before posing their bodies For police to find, he was meticulous, as if he'd seen a few too many scary movies himself. He knew what police would be looking for and made every effort to throw them off his trail. For 72 harrowing hours, Danny Rowling terrorized the college town of Gainesville, Florida. Danny murdered five innocent students as they slept in their off-campus apartments. He mutilated their bodies before slipping into the night knowing the police would never catch him. And they never did, at least not for the murders. Instead, Danny's ego got the best of him in the end. But his twisted journey to death row was one written in blood. Thanks for watching True Crime Recaps. I'm Chris. Danny arrived in Gainesville in August 1990 just as the fall semester at the University of Florida was about to begin. He made camp in the woods outside of town where he sat and played guitar and recorded several audio tapes full of songs and mindless ramblings. And one of those tapes ends with Danny saying, I'm going to sign off for a little bit. I've got something I've got to do. On Friday, August 24th, two freshmen at the University of Florida, Sonia Larson and Christina Powell, were asleep in their apartment. It was the early morning hours, the time between 2 and 4 a.m. when nothing good happens. Danny broke in, armed with a Marine Corps K-Bar knife and an automatic pistol, and found Christina asleep on the living room couch. He stood over her for a moment before exploring the rest of the apartment. He found Sonia asleep in an upstairs bedroom and used duct tape to keep her mouth shut and conceal her screams. Danny held Sonia's hands behind her head and stabbed her 20 times in the chest. Judging by the smear marks and defensive wounds, Sonia died fighting for her life. Danny dragged her to the foot of the bed before heading back downstairs. Christina slept through the ordeal, only waking to find a masked man pressing a double strip of duct tape against her mouth. He bound her arms and used the K-bar knife to cut off her clothes and underwear. He assaulted her violently, threatening her with the knife if she dared fight back. When he was done, he forced Christina to lie face down on the floor where he stabbed her five times in the back. She bled to death while he helped himself to a shower. But before leaving, Danny posed the bodies in sexually explicit positions, a calling card that would eventually come back to bite him. He also severed Sonia's nipples and kept them as trophies. On Saturday night, he broke into the apartment of 18-year-old Krista Hoyt, using a screwdriver to pry open the sliding glass door. But Krista was out for the night and didn't return home until 11 a.m. That was fine. Danny had nowhere to be. He ambushed her from behind when she finally came home. He put her in a chokehold and duct taped her mouth and hands. Then he dragged her into the bedroom and cut off her clothes as he'd done with Christina Powell. After violating her, Danny flipped Krista over and stabbed her several times in the back. One wound ruptured her aorta and she bled to death in seconds. As with Sonia, he cut off Christina's nipples and placed them on the bed beside her body. But then he took his staged murder scene a step further. He decapitated Krista and placed her head on the bookshelf across from the bed, facing her. Then he propped up her body to sit at the foot of the bed. On Sunday morning, Christina's parents drove to Gainesville to check on their daughter. They hadn't heard from her since Friday. Strange for a freshman beginning the next stage of their life. According to the Chicago Tribune, the parents accompanied police officers to the building around 4 p.m. and a maintenance worker let them into the apartment. Inside, they discovered a grisly scene. The chief medical examiner knew right away this was the work of a Ted Bundy-style serial killer. Whoever they were, they knew what they were doing. You might say they were cold, cruel, and calculated. Nine hours later, the police got another call. Krista Hoyt never showed up for her evening shift at the county sheriff's department. They drove two miles from the first murder scene to find a third mutilated body. News of the murders spread like wildfire. Students fled the area, and many began sleeping in groups and carrying bats wherever they went. Some slept in shifts, like keeping watch on an active battlefield. But even with all the heightened attention, the Gainesville Ripper wasn't done. He still had more lives to take. Around 3 a.m. on Monday, August 27th, Danny broke into an apartment owned by lifelong friends and college roommates, Manny Taboda and Tracy Paulus. Like Krista's apartment, Danny used his screwdriver to pry open the sliding glass door. He first crept into Manny's room and found him asleep in bed. But Manny was an athletic kid and put up a decent fight. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough to save his life. Tracy heard the struggle and rushed to Manny's room. There she saw Danny with a knife held over his head. He was covered in Manny's blood, and he quickly turned his attention toward Tracy. She fled down the hallway and tried to lock herself in her bedroom, but the thin door was no match for Danny's large frame. He broke through it and bound Tracy with duct tape. Her final words before he taped her mouth were, You're the one, aren't you? Danny replied, yeah, I'm the one. The University of Florida canceled the first week of classes as police conducted their investigation. In their minds, they were dealing with a professional who knew exactly what the police would look for. Danny cleaned up nicely before leaving each crime scene. He removed the duct tape and threw the pieces in nearby dumpsters. He wore gloves the entire time, so fingerprints were out of the question. He even sanitized the bodies with chemicals to conceal any DNA and semen, but he didn't get all of it. Even though they collected 18,000 pieces of evidence, all police had to go on were the posed bodies, some scratch marks on the sliding glass doors, and some semen found on Christina Powell's underwear. News of the Gainesville killings made it back to Shreveport, Louisiana, where police had an eerily similar cold case on their hands from November 1989. 55-year-old William Grissom lived with his 24-year-old daughter, Julie. She was a petite brunette, like the four girls in Gainesville, studying marketing at the Louisiana State University of Shreveport. William's 8-year-old grandson and Julie's nephew, Sean, was spending the weekend for his birthday. Sadly, he'd never celebrate another. William was cooking steaks that night while Julie had plans to attend a high school friend's wedding. Between 6 and 8 p.m., a psychopath broke into their home and stabbed all three of them to death. Police found William's body stuffed in a utility closet with multiple stab wounds to his back and chest. Sean was face down in the living room with a single stab wound through his back and chest. Finally, they found Julie in the bedroom naked and mutilated with obvious signs of sexual assault. Her attacker bound her mouth and wrists with duct tape and tried to clean her body with vinegar. It would take 17 years and five more grisly deaths before the Grissom triple murder case was finally officially solved. But we're not quite there just yet. You'll be hard-pressed to find a serial killer that doesn't come from some messed-up childhood, and Danny's story is no different. He was born in May 1954 to James and Claudia Rowling. The family lived in Shreveport, Louisiana, where James worked as a lieutenant with the police department. He was, by all accounts, a horrible father. James and Claudia married when she was 19, but he fell into a fit of rage when she got pregnant two weeks later. He never wanted children, and the world would have been a better place if he never did. Since he couldn't take out his rage on their unborn child, James focused on Claudia instead. He beat her until Danny was born, giving him a new target to abuse. James gave Danny a beating for his first birthday. Apparently, he didn't like how his toddler son crawled. For a guy who never wanted kids, James didn't seem to know where they came from. Danny's younger brother, Kevin, was born in 1955, and the abuse just got worse. By most accounts, he was cold, cruel, and calculated, perhaps the only traits that rubbed off on young Danny. At 11 years old, he found escape in music and began playing guitar and singing. Then he turned to booze and drugs. His life of crime seemed to kick off at age 14 when a neighbor caught him at his daughter's window. Danny caught a vicious beating for the Peeping Tom incident and ran off to join the military as soon as he was legal a few years later. But the Navy rejected him and his time in the Air Force didn't last long. As the story goes, he was eventually forced out. So he tried to make a go of it as a family man. He married a woman named O'Mather Loomis in 1974, but they were divorced by 77. One year into their marriage, he started disappearing at night. He was up to his old tricks, peeping into neighbor ladies' windows. After he threatened her at gunpoint, his wife took their baby girl and left. In retaliation, he raped a woman that looked a lot like O'Mather and spent the next 13 years in and out of prison for a series of armed robberies. But he was capable of much worse. In May of 1990, an argument broke out in the rolling household. Danny, now standing at six foot two and clocking in at over 200 pounds, could easily overpower his father. Yet the man still made him feel small. So Danny grabbed a gun and shot his father in the face and stomach, bringing him within an inch of his life. Miraculously, James survived, though he lost the use of one eye and an ear. Now, wanted for attempted murder, Danny fled south to Sarasota, Florida. He changed his name to Michael Kennedy Jr., but he didn't change his ways. The first thing he did was break into the home of Janet Frake through a back bedroom window. He wore a black ski mask while he assaulted her repeatedly and threatened to leave her for dead in the closet. But Janet kept calm, at least as calm as she could. Instead of screaming and fighting, she treated Danny like a friend. She even handed him a beer and a cold glass, hoping he'd leave behind some DNA evidence. After hours, she managed to convince him to leave and spare her life. Danny headed three hours north to Gainesville. Three weeks later, all hell broke loose. At first, the Gainesville cops suspected 19-year-old college student Edward Humphrey. He'd recently been evicted from Manny and Tracy's apartment complex and was known to make bizarre and scary comments around campus. According to the New York Times, police arrested Edward after he allegedly assaulted his grandmother, though she denies anything ever happened. While Danny camped out in the woods for the next two months, playing guitar and singing songs, police publicly identified Edward as the prime suspect in the Gainesville slayings. They plastered his picture in every newspaper and set his bail at $1 million, but they never found any evidence against him. Sure, Edward was an odd kid. He made the perfect scapegoat for the brutal killings, but he wasn't the Gainesville Ripper. Less than a month after the murders, forensics confirmed the DNA found at all three scenes was from the same man, but it wasn't Edward Humphrey. But the public had calmed down by then, thinking the Gainesville Ripper was in police custody. So, to keep the peace, the cops kept this new discovery to themselves. Unfortunately, it left them back at square one. Funny enough, Florida police did already have the Gainesville Ripper in custody. They just didn't know it. If you remember, Danny wasn't just a killer, he was also a thief. Ten days after police found Manny and Tracy's bodies, he got arrested for robbing a supermarket in Ocala, about 40 minutes south of Gainesville. On the night of Krista Hoyt's murder, police responded to a bank robbery about a mile from her home. The teller said they slipped a red dye pack into the money bag before handing it to the robber. Later that night, an officer noticed a suspicious man walking in the woods. He gave chase, but lost the man in the trees. He tracked the man to a campsite where he found a bag of cash covered in red dye. He also found a screwdriver, a gun, and a cassette player with a tape inside. At the time, they didn't link the robbery to the murders. If only they'd listened to that tape. The Gainesville Ripper case was on the verge of going cold when a woman from Louisiana called in with a groundbreaking tip. Cindy Jurasich had grown up with Danny in Shreveport. They went to the same church, and he regularly hung out with her and her husband Steve. In late August 1990, Cindy was driving across the Florida Panhandle when she heard the news about the Gainesville murders. It made her recall something Danny had said before leaving town. He said... One day I'm going to leave this town and I'm going to go where the girls are beautiful and I can just lay in the sun and watch beautiful women all day. If that's your goal, Gainesville is the place. He had also told her husband Steve that he liked to stick knives in people, which was the last straw. Danny wasn't welcome in their home anymore and he skipped town shortly after. Cindy thought about it for a few months, but she couldn't ignore the feeling that her old acquaintance could have made his way to Gainesville. In November 1990, she suggested they look into Danny Rowling. That's when they went down to the Marion County Jail and tested his blood. Sure enough, it was a match. Police rushed back to Gainesville and examined the campsite evidence. They finally listened to the tape recorder, which included recordings of Danny singing and talking to himself. In one song, he sang, Mystery Rider, What's Your Name? You're a Killer, a Drifter Gone Insane. Finally, the man on the tape admitted to being Danny Rowling, and the final puzzle piece fell into place. They charged him with murdering the five college students and convicted him of bank robbery before the murder trial began. He was transferred to Florida State Prison, where he befriended Bobby Lewis, a death row inmate serving a life sentence for killing a drug dealer. For some reason, Danny told Bobby everything about the murders. He wanted to make an official confession. In doing so, investigators learned even more disgusting details about the murders. Apparently, Danny left after killing Krista Hoyt, but was worried he left his wallet behind at the crime scene. He returned several hours later to look for it, and that's when he decided to cut off her head and pose it on the bookshelf. Danny also dove into his multiple personalities. One was Yinad, or Danny spelled backward. He said Yinad was bad, but wasn't evil, not like Gemini. Danny's second, more sinister alter ego, Gemini killed those kids, not me. He pled guilty to all charges before his trial began in February 1994. The jury sentenced him to death on April 20th, 1994. Danny sat on death row for 12 years, and just before he was put to death, he wrote a letter confessing the 1989 Grissom family murders. In that time, he got engaged to controversial true crime author Sandra London and sat down for several interviews regarding his case. In March 1994, an episode of ABC's Turning Point covered the Gainesville Ripper case. The story inspired Kevin Williamson to write Scream, which he originally called Scary Movie, before selling it to Miramax. On October 25, 2006, A Florida state prison executed Danny by lethal injection. His last meal consisted of lobster tail and butterfly shrimp with strawberry cheesecake and sweet tea for dessert. 47 people packed into the viewing room, more than double its capacity, to watch Danny die. The prison doctor pronounced him dead a little after 6 p.m., finally ending the most gruesome crime spree in Gainesville history. So, what's your favorite scary movie? And that's your recap. Thanks for hanging out with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, go ahead and tap that subscribe button so you never miss a story. But don't go away. Catch up on more recaps right here, right now. Until next time, take care.